All-Stars. Science, that's how it all starts. The hallmark of an all-star team combines the best minds from all over the scene. We got friends of the show coming back, bringing laughs, jokes, and they're also dropping facts. So kick back, relax, and unwind. What you're going to find is going to blow your mind. Hi, I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, host of Star Talk Radio. I've recruited a crack team of scientists and science educators to help me bring the universe down to Earth. And they are the Star Talk All Stars. Welcome to Star Talk All Stars. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist, and this week is a special mashup edition. You'll hear like mishmash of some of our favorite moments around a specific topic within a range of show hosts, expert guests, and co-hosts. Check it out. Welcome to Star Talk All Stars. I'm Jan Eleven, your All Star host for the day. I'm an astrophysicist and author. Joining me as co-host is the funny Matt Kirshen, hey. host of Probably Science. Hi, Matt. How's it going? It's nice to be here in space. (laughs) It's great to have you. And I also want to introduce one of my favorite people in the world. Joining us in the studio, Ray Weiss. Thank you, Jonathan. Otherwise known as Rainer Weiss (laughs) for long. (laughs) Great to have you. Ray is Professor Emeritus uh, from MIT. He is also one of the original architects of the LIGO detector, which announced the detection of gravitational waves. One of the most groundbreaking discoveries of modern astrophysics and very personally important to me. Ray is uh, one of the founders of the LIGO instrument and continues to work on the instrument all the time, as I know, because I've been to the sites with you. <laughs> you kindly let me perform you very modest. In the tunnel, I remember. Yes, in the heat of Louisiana. It was amazing. So it's so great to have you here. We're going to talk about LIGO and gravitational waves and black holes. So I think what we want to draw out is why this discovery was so important. I think that when people heard about it, it was oh, the whole world stopped in February. 11th when the announcement was made and for a minute it was so exciting everybody was frozen and then I felt like an hour later people just weren't sure what it was all about (laughs) it's hard to understand I mean I've got it covered because I'm obviously good on these things but just for everyone else if you could just kind of give a vague (laughs) well I'll try but I I, I was as mystified as you (laughs) in the fact that it had this enormous public recognition oh yeah I mean, you take other. Were things. you surprised? So I, you made I, I was more than surprised. I was yeah. flabbergasted, to be honest with you. Oh, really? I mean, I, I mean, my my first real instinct that it had permeated the society was when I came to New York to come and visit you at oh, the yeah. at the, at the uh, Pioneer Works. Works. Yeah. And I get in the subway, and there's this sign that says, you know, uh, scientists can find gravitational waves, but they you can't find an apartment in New York with an old walk-in closet. Right. I said, where in the hell does that come from? <laughs> yeah, you know? exactly. And then it was a Jeopardy question. <laughs> Is that what it was? Okay. Yeah. No. Also, as well. Oh, I didn't realize that. I didn't yeah. realize that. Have you, has science now detected an apartment in New York with a walking closet? <laughs> I haven't been looking lately, but I don't live here. If anyone can find it, Ray can. <laughs> so, Ray, do you want to tell us what gravitational waves are? Because this is very hard for people to understand. They can yeah. say the words, but they really don't get what it's all about. And they certainly don't get why you played it to them as a sound. Well, uh, th- th- let's start with what they might be. I mean, mm. uh, what they are. They're a result of... Uh, Einstein's first thinking about how you measure things in space and time. In other words, he realized back in 1905 that the Newtonian theory we had, the theory that was the theory that was oh, we all learned in high school, was inadequate. Mm-hmm. That you couldn't have things travel so fast that everybody knew about it instantaneously. There had to be some delay because the fastest that things can move, even information, thought, 
<laughs> is uh, the velocity of light. Right. So if the sun disappeared out. tomorrow, it should take us eight minutes. Well, that's right. If the sun disappears, it. well, yeah, it'll take about eight, nine minutes before mm -hmm. we really know about it. Mm -hmm. It's great if you're like a magician or something. <laughs> right. Do you need the extra time? Well, yeah, because like, David Longfield made the Statue of Liberty disappear, but he had like seconds really to do that in. <laughs> yeah, if you had eight minutes to play with, you could with, do anything. You could, anything. Like, like, you could be an amateur magician. It's still kind of like you'd have time to get some helpers to actually shove it out of place. What'd you do with the sun, Matt? Yeah, but those, those eight minutes are damned important. Right. Uh, because they, they tell you that there has to be some mechanism for information to travel not infinitely quickly. Right. So in and Newton's theory, it would that's have to be That's the first order way of talking about gravitational waves. Mm -hmm. Then specifically, what are they? Einstein had a different way of looking at gravity than Newton did. And he taught us all that space and time get distorted by gravity. You get curvatures, you get mm -hmm. distortions of space and time. And what a gravitational wave is, is a traveling distortion of space mm -hmm. and time, but we measure it as a distortion in space. And a very special thing, so you don't have, you can imagine what it is, it's not very hard to imagine, is that it's a stretching of space and a compression of space. And here's, just bear with me, here's what it is. Where the wave travels, let's say, toward you, mm -hmm. and it does its dirty work, perpendicular to the direction in which it's moving. So something's doing this. Mm -hmm. And while it's doing this in okay, one Ray's dimension... Okay, oscillating his hands in and out. <laughs> oh, yeah, I got to tell you, that's right. Like Waving a, my hands back. Almost like a slinky spring. That's, like. Well, a slinky, let's say a slinky in the X direction, but a slinky inverted in the Y direction. It's doing the opposite. I hope you right. all it's use stretching right coordinate in, systems. in one dimension in the direction it's moving, perpendicular direction it's moving. It's, it's stretching in one dimension, it's compressing in the other. And that continual compression, expansion, travels at the velocity of light toward you. And that's the way to imagine a gravitational wave. Now, when you first started thinking about this, yeah. you were a young professor at MIT, and you had this whole gravity research program. And I know you confessed to me <laughs> that they asked you to teach a class in general relativity. <laughs> well, I'll confess again. <laughs> uh, what Janet's referring to is a very big embarrassment. See, I come to MIT having been to Princeton, the hotbed of general relativity and gravity, and I come and I start a group, uh, very expendable. I'm an experimenter. I'm not a theorist like Jana. Jana is a true theorist, but and I'm an experimenter. I deal with things with my hands. And, and uh, what, what happened? already, like, before the show even started... He was using his hands Well, wildly. yeah, before the show started, you were kind of looking at the microphone <laughs> and, like, taking it apart. Like, you can't help yourself. <laughs> no, you, you can't. Switch <laughs> yeah, you got to do that. you got to find out what you're, what's, what you're surrounded by. Come on, yeah, that's part right. of the world. Yeah. Palpate, palpate yeah, the world. So, you know, it's tactile and it's all sort of seeing things. But anyway, so as Jana says, that what happened is that I'm running this group that is supposedly about very complicated topics like cosmology, which is the history of the universe, and also gravitation. Okay, those were the two things I started. And then the department head comes to me and says, you know, we would like you to teach a course in general relativity, which is a course of the new kind of gravity. And I couldn't tell him I didn't know a damn thing about it. <laughs> I mean, I really didn't know much about it. I didn't know the mathematics. I mean, the students, when I finally started teaching, were probably barely, uh, I was barely half a day ahead of the students, if at all. <laughs> right. Okay? So here I go, and I, they ask me a very hard question as we go along. The course has its ups and downs, as you can well imagine. And they asked me a hard question. They said, look, what is a gravitational wave? And I tried to answer it. But what was going on at that time was that Joe Weber, who was a physicist at the University of Maryland, had begun to talk about that he might have discovered gravitational waves. 
Mm-hmm. Okay? And this would have, his campaign this a, started in the 50s to 60s. No, this was started in the 60s. 60 and, and, to late 60s. Uh, well, he, he started really quite early in 62, mm-hmm. and he made the announcement that he had discovered gravitational waves in 1969. Mm-hmm. That caused a tremendous fury. He was incredibly famous. Right. Uh, well, yeah. And he was lying? He was just. No, 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 no. Don't, don't say lying. That's not the right word. <laughs> We're all very defensive about Joe now. It's like, I don't want to brag, but I also did discover gravitational waves like about a month before you guys. That's so, good. I'm yeah. glad of that. <laughs> oh, why did yours look like? Uh, it was just like, it was like I just put a cup on a, it kind of wobbled a bit. And the wobbled. water yeah. wobbled, and he knew that they were gravitational right. waves. It's like those <laughs> Jurassic Park. Yeah, well, like those two birds in the New Yorker cartoon. Yeah. Probably saw that cartoon. I didn't see it. Two, two birds sitting, this is right after the discovery again. Mm-hmm. Two birds sitting on a branch. It was right on the 12th of February. We announced on the 11th of February. So, mm-hmm. so somebody had prior information. Right. But these two birds, two birds are looking, one I'm looking at the other, and the, for one says, hey, did I hear you, or was that a gravitational wave? Change? <laughs> right. And that case already—that's the kind of thing. But anyway, so let me get back to the story. The uh, the thing was that um, they asked me about this, and I frankly, be honest with you, I, despite having trouble with the mathematics, I also had trouble with understanding Weber's experiment. Mm-hmm. It's not that he was lying or anything like that. It's just a, a way too complicated for me to understand exactly what he was doing. So I spent a lot of time one night thinking about how could I explain uh, what a gravitational wave does and how would you detect it in the most pristine, simple-minded way possible. And that's where this haiku, as you call it, yeah. came about, which is the, uh, the, I thought, well, you know, one way to do it is send some masses out there, put them out in outer space, put clocks on them, two clocks, one on one, clock on the other, and have a light beam go from one to the other and measure the time. That's all. Yeah. Very straightforward measurement. And they'd have to be sort of floating. So they're floating they're, out there. I mean, like bobbing on the wave of the, of, of the ocean if something they're, Well, they're the actually ocean. just moving along without any forces on them. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden a gravitational wave comes along and it changes the time that light takes that goes between them. That's it. Mm-hmm. Makes it shorter for a while and longer. It does yeah. exactly what the gravity. But you started to build one. Well, right yeah, away. yeah, yeah. But that's the, you know, that's the basic idea. And by the way, that idea mm-hmm. is the one that propagated into the later on LIGO and everything else. Is this what you wrote about in your book? Is this what? Over yeah, it. yeah. So um, I was fascinated with you mentioned Ray looking at the microphones and all this stuff. I was fascinated that Ray said that he started life with one ambition, which was to make music easier to hear. That's right. And yeah. then you dreamt up, which is basically a cosmic recording device, <laughs> sort of insane, gigantic gigantic cosmic recording device to record sounds from space. She was the only one in my whole life who ever made that analogy, and she was right. <laughs> you know, I mean, she, I told yes. her the story. Awesome. And you, you, because I think you have a musical background, or around you is music, and yeah. understood this right away. Yeah. But it's absolutely true. It was... It, yeah, so... What's the book called? Um, Black Hole Blues and Other Songs from Outer Space. <laughs> Which, nice. if I was Neil deGrasse Tyson, I would say in an awesome, deep DJ voice. <laughs> I think I do have him recorded saying it. <laughs> I should air it. You just play that in at that yeah, point. Right, exactly. Awesome. Just write, edit that in. Now, um, you were really hoping for the centenary for the first detection. So here you've been building this thing for 50 years, Ray. I can't tell you how many times somebody said to me, we better go ask Ray. You know, on site, you're doing experiments, you're, you're walking the beam tubes, and you want it to be... 2015. You wanted that so badly, I know. And 16 or 15 was good. 16 was the latest. Okay, so you were willing to take 16, and then if not that, you would find an Einstein paper that was, you know... It's a 2018 maybe, paper, right. but that was it. <laughs> no, a lot of people told me, 2018, don't expect a detection before 2018. Yeah. But on September 14th, 2015, yep. this struck. You, it must have blown your mind. I mean... <laughs> What is the experience of waking up that morning and checking the logs yeah, yeah. and seeing? I'm thinking it was like it was the practice run that 
Like, that wasn't meant to be the run that detected anything, right? You're absolutely on the mark. That's correct, yeah. It's even worse than that. What happened is we, we didn't expect this, and when, as Jana points out, I happened to be on vacation. I had been at the site the, the days before that. And so I, you asked, what did I think? Yeah, you well, check I, the log, you wake up, 8 a.m. in Well, May. I'll tell you what happened. That was really cute. <laughs> I went to, went to the log, we were on vacation. My wife mm. and son were with me, and, and, her, and, and, her, his, and his, his wife. And I was looking at the log, which I do every morning, mm. and I see this thing, which was very cryptic. It says, we're canceling a fix-it day. Now, we have fix-it day every Tuesday. Mm-hmm. You know, we are running in the middle of a run, even in an engineering one. We, when we, we find all these things wrong, we don't want to mess with the apparatus, but we do it at a certain time so both sites are dead at the same time. And they said, well, we're canceling it. So I look at the other site, same damn thing. Mm-hmm. We're canceling fix-it day. So I call up, what's the hell, what's going on? And they say, well, and then I, it didn't take long, I began to get email. Mm-hmm. And then very quickly, within about... Half an hour after that, I saw an absolutely magnificent curve, mm-hmm. which was this, this signal, which now is on people's dresses. It's, yeah. it's in everywhere. And it was this, this, this binary black hole, 30 solar masses. Mm-hmm. And you, I look at it, it's says, holy a- mackerel, this has mm-hmm. got to be a fake. Is it really mackerel that you said? Yes. <laughs> well, maybe not. I'm trying to be careful. He's, he's cleaning it up for air. <laughs> if I know you, Ray, that's holy not what you smokes. said. Holy whiz. <laughs> no, none of those. You're a 1920s paper boy. <laughs> Say, mister, mister. Really? <laughs> Of scoops. It was really something when in February, all these months later, the announcement was made and everybody just shared in this incredible excitement. That was really a moment in history. And it was, well, we did a lot of work between the time we we found it and then yeah. because we didn't believe it. Yeah. Let's be honest. I mean, yeah. Jana, that was such a big signal. We mm-hmm. never expected such a big Right, signal. amazing. Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. This week's special edition is a hodgepodge of some of our favorite discussions from the past two seasons. Here's more of this week's mashup. Welcome back. Welcome back to Star Talk All Star Edition. I'm your All Star host, Bill Nye. I'm here with the remarkable and charming Chuck Nice. Ah, thank you, Bill. And the two of us are going to do our best to address your cosmic queries. These will be inquiries. From anywhere, Chuck. That's right. Anywhere in the cosmos. can be anywhere in the cosmos. If you can get on the Earth's internet and send it in in enough English characters or Roman characters arranged in English language, we will do our best for you. That's right, because in the end, it's all zeros and ones anyway. It is. Yep. It's uh, troubling but empowering. <laughs> hey, here's Shane Henson from Facebook who says this. Hey, Bill, my question is, what invention from outside of science has made a large impact within science? Has an invention built to serve a different purpose other than science been used to advance science in new avenues of thought or discussion? Shane Hansen from Lethbridge, Alberta, Canada. P.S. Bill Nye the Science Guy is what made science fun for me growing up. I still get excited whenever I see an episode. Thank you so much. Wow. Very sweet. It was very and, and heartfelt, right? Heart, yes. Yeah, I mean, this... Uh, I'm palpitating. <laughs> no, uh, so what is outside of I think there's a pill for science? that. I think I take it for my heart. <laughs> what is outside of science? 
So I guess what he was, what he's saying is, has there been kind of um, something that wasn't a scientific endeavor that led to a great scientific discovery? Well, I mean, nuclear weapons. Wow. God, that's not the answer I wanted. Well, I mean, <laughs> Even though you're right, that makes sense. Trying to understand the inside of atoms. Right. Led to, let's call it nuclear power. Nuclear power. Feel better. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Some of the energy right here, I think it's 19% of the energy in New York is made nuclearly. Yes. As a matter did, of fact, uh, that we've just found out that um, the power plant, which is not very far from where we are, is not uh, is not adequately protected. I'm shocked. <laughs> no, everybody, I'm not changing the subject. The not nu- change nuclear the- industry just hasn't been that great at safety. And yes. What is that about? I mean, seriously. Well, they, they got in a hurry. And plus, the, it just seemed like such a great idea. <laughs> Dig this stuff up, right. fish in it, draw, make electricity, put it back in the ground. What could go wrong? Exactly. Stuff goes wrong. Anyway, that aside, what invention came from outside of some, I mean, it depends what you try, want to exclude. What do you call, what do you call an invention? You yeah, know what, what do I mean? you want to exclude? But to me, the like greatest invention, go ahead. Has there been like some, I don't know, uh, crazy cooking discovery that led to something in the medical world. You know what I mean? Like, we found that by cooking the bark of a certain tree uh, cures this particular ailment. Oh, that's, uh, and the, then we were able to distill that essence and take and make a pill out of it. Something well, like that. Willow bark became aspirin. Get out! You're absolutely... They're right! Yeah, but, but is that... I forgot about were that. Were the willow bark investigators and investigatrices, were they not doing science? You know, some I, level. I, I would, I would assume they were have yeah. lab coats and business cards right. that said "science person" on it. That was a long time ago. Too. Well, and it worked. And the other, when people say, "What's the greatest invention?" I almost always reply, "Sewers." You, I, you know, we've had this conversation, but uh, and we'll get into that because I have. A Let's couple, not get in all the way into that. We won't get all the way because I have somebody. I don't want to steal it from them. But the last time we we had a conversation, you told me sewers, and it. it I was. I was I was flabbergasted. You were still flabbergasting a flab. Still casting a flab. And I got to tell you, when I heard your explanation as well, I was like, "Holy crap! That makes." I'm sorry. And he did it again, people. Comedy is natural for him. That doesn't even. It just it just it just boom happens. Happens like that. Enough with the (laughs) herbs. Yeah. So. Anyway, but yeah. what's from outside of science? Is willow bark from outside of science? Is fire making from outside of science? Right. Uh, I don't know. Second law of thermodynamics, I'd say, is inside of science. Timekeeping, we talked about earlier. Yeah, timekeeping is science. Coffee making, is that chefing or sciencing? Mm, ah, see, there Either you way, go. it's delicious. So true. Now I want a cup of coffee. There's no, there's no, you, I really recommend, if you guys out there are going to start a radio show or a podcast, I really recommend you have a coffee pot. This is not extraordinary. This is not an extraordinary idea. It's a simple thing, right? It's very common. Very common. Lead on. All right, here we go. Um, <clears throat> well, Shane, good question. Uh, uh, we didn't really get to an answer, but uh, yeah. Well, it's a tough one. It's I don't know one, what's outside really, of science. Yeah, what's outside of science? Everything is science when you think about it. So That's what we're saying. That's really what we're saying. That's what we're saying. Everything is science, okay? All right, here we go. Grant Roach says this. Hi, Mr. Nye. What three key inventions do we need for a manned mission to Mars? Which could be a human mission. 
It doesn't have to be guys. I mean, if I'm going out into space for 400 days, right? You're a great-looking guy, Chuck, but I wouldn't mind having some ladies. I am C A. Okay. You can. There's no need to feel down. Pick yourself off the ground. That's right. You can get yourself clean, baby. Have a good meal. You can have a good meal. You can do whatever. You feel at, at the YMCA. At the, there you have it. So, th- with that in mind, <laughs> I don't know why this person chose three key inventions. You know, this is what they. I just read them, Bill. But uh, he but, says, "What three key inventions do we need to 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 send some Mars, some some astronauts to Mars?" So, at the Planetary Society, as you may know, yes, uh, we did an analysis last spring. Mm-hmm. We don't really need any new technologies, uh, new inventions. We just need to uh, improve or literally expand uh, the technologies we already have. Okay. And the expansion hilarious reference I was making was to the inflatable habitat. Aha! So you have existing rockets. You get in orbit. You get you, then you fly some more rockets up to get enough fuel. Mm-hmm. Then you fly to Mars in a big inflatable habitat. Mm-hmm. And you orbit Mars. And all this could be done with existing technologies if it was just decided to be done. So the analysis we did at the Planetary Society was 2033. All right. Now, if you're of a certain age, Chuck, as I am, (laughs) you remember the Apollo program and astronauts orbited the moon first. Yes. Apollo 8, uh, 1968, orbited the moon and... That was the precursor. That's where we figured out trajectories, made sure the retro rockets retroed and rocked, right. and took the famous picture of the Earth rise on right. the eve of Isaac Newton's birthday, 1968, astronaut Bill Anders. And they call that what? A moon orbit insertion? What is that? That's lunar orbit lunar insertion. Lunar orbit insertion, right? Yes. Okay, cool. Space people dig that. Yeah. So we could do the same thing at Mars in 2033 without increasing the United States National Aeronautics and Space Administration NASA budget. If you got international partners, if you got motivated, uh, McDonnell Douglas, well, I mean, uh, Lockheed Martin thinks they could do it in 2028, which would be two Martian orbits sooner. And we're all for it. Let's go. But the things you need is a place for people to live for this journey. Mm -hmm. You need great big rockets. Right. And... um, uh, you need to decide to do it, and the big, the biggest problems are political. Yeah. All right. So um, let's move on to our next lead on. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Bert Wardwell. Hmm. I like your name, Bert. Bert Wardwell uh, from Facebook says this. In recent history, the last 100 years or so, what has been the most important invention or breakthrough that has not had a direct military national security application? Thank you. Uh, Maybe genetically modified crops. Ooh. But don't we feed the military with food? Well, we do. So, maybe but, but we feed everybody else with food too. So they're just lumped into that group, the military, uh, yeah. lumped in. Mm. Uh, Unlike the like my mashed potatoes. Uh, but I think it has a cynical quality to it. That query doesn't. Yes, it? because what he's saying is basically, unless we're making something to destroy one another, we really don't tend to well, here's have an advancements. Example. Here's an example from my own experience, and I don't know if this will really do it for you, uh, Bert. 
But I uh, lived in the Pacific Northwest for a long time. We we're very proud that it's the hypothermia capital of the world. <laughs> the air is so moist any time of year. There's so much moisture in the air. It just sucks the heat out of you. It, the moist air conducts heat, or so, water conducts heat 25 times strong, more strongly than air. That's why wicking technology is so important. So we had this t- state-of-the-art technology at first was uh, Filson which had this tin cloth, they call it, this waxed cotton cloth, and moisture will pass through it. I have a, I have a Filson hat from the 1800s. Nice. Same technology. Okay. Now we have Gore-Tex and the derivative products. All right, so when I went to do the Science Guy show in a Navy airplane. Nice. I, it was cool. Uh, we did the Navy training. I swam around the pool with boots on. I wore a flight suit. You know, I, it was just so cool. Yeah. But then uh, the Navy had this very primitive keep warm technology. When you have to parachute out of your fighter plane over the middle of the ocean, okay, and get in a rubber raft and yeah. hope somebody finds you, right? It was all this very heavy wool. But now the Navy has Gore Tex, right? So which came first, Bert? <laughs> I say the uh, moisture wicking technology came first. That's what I say. Well, there you have it. Bringing space and science down to earth. You're listening to Star Talk. It's Emily Rice here. Some of you might know me as DJ Carly Sagan, uh, but in real life, I'm professor of astronomy and astrophysics at the CUNY College of Staten Island, as well as a research associate at the American Museum of Natural History, where our benevolent overhost, <laughs> I say that? our benevolent overlord is the director of the Hayden Planetarium. And I have with me in the studio my comedic co-host, Chuck Nice. Yes, Emily. Thanks for being here. Of course. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. And I sh- we should introduce our guest. Yes. This episode of All Stars, we're going to delve into one of the hottest stories of the year, the discovery of the TRAPPIST-1 system and its seven exoplanets. To help us with that, we've got a very special guest today, David Kipping, who's a professor of astronomy at Columbia University. Hey, greetings to all you star talkers out there across the space-time continuum, wherever and whenever you are. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, not talking to an amateur here. So you're a research astronomer. That's we'll get right. to that. Yes. Let's, before we take our first cosmic queries, let's take a second to talk about exoplanets. This is your research area of expertise, yeah. right, David? Yeah, this is a pretty epic discovery. It kind of uh, hit a lot of us out of the blue. We'd only just recovered from the news of Proxima Centauri okay. having an Earth-mass planet around it. Yes. And then this discovery sort of not just goes one better, but seven better has seven Earth sized planets. It wasn't even so we knew about this planet, the this star and the and some of these planets beforehand, right? Yeah, that's right. There was, uh, I think, uh, two of them were had, had uh, the orbital periods. They knew that those planets were there, and there was a hint of a third signal in there. And then they got some time on NASA's Spitzer Space Telescope, uh-huh. and they observed the star continuously for, I think, it was something like 500 hours, which is a lot of time. It's a lot of time. And they saw, telescope. like, just transits everywhere in this star. <laughs> like, it's just full of transits. It's a so, transiting wow. system. So we know that these planets are there. Why? So what's happening is there's a there's each of these seven planets is passing in front of the star 
blocking out some of the light for a short amount of time, and uh, it's happening periodically. So the orbital periods of these planets, their year is very, very short compared to the Earth. You know, the Earth's 365 days. Mm -hmm. These planets are more like sort of uh, one day up to maybe two weeks. And so every couple of weeks, you're seeing like a bunch of these planets pass in front of the star and loads and loads of dips all over the place when you look at the brightness over time. So that's how they found these things. Awesome. And you study exoplanets, right? That's right, yeah. What kind of exoplanets do you study? Do you study these types of exoplanets or different ones? All sorts. I, I don't discriminate. All sorts of exoplanets <laughs> are fine with me. I guess we particularly like planets uh, uh, which we call cool worlds, which we really mean not just like dope. We're not like trying to use it in that sense. We mean like worlds which are at long periods where they are cool enough that they could be you know, potentially hospitable for life. Right. We don't want the super, wow. super hot ones so much, but they're also kind of interesting. In their own literally way. cool. Like yeah, actually, literally cool. Actually, yeah, yeah, cool. Exactly. Yes. And uh, we like the worlds which are far enough from their start. They can have rings, they can have moons, they're going to be all sorts of extra stuff happening. So We'll, we'll yeah, get to we'll that get a little to bit that. later. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Should we start with our Already queries? fascinating. I love it. And let's get into our queries. And of course, we have taken these questions from all across the internet, wherever we have a presence. And we always start with a Patreon patron because they give us money. <laughs> thank and you. So we say thank you. Science and don't come for free. That's right. And uh, <laughs> we will give you priority uh, in terms of your query. And what I'm really saying to you people is we can be bought. <laughs> so for a price. And right. it's, it's, it's not that much. It's not that much. <laughs> we, are, we can be bought and we are cheap. So <laughs> here's the first question. And it comes from Frank Kane. And Frank Kane says this. I've heard that Trappist One's exoplanets are tidally locked to their star. How do we know that? And what does that mean for their suitability for life? And Frank oh. comes to us from Orlando, Florida. And uh, that's a Hopefully. great question, Frank. An excellent question. That's a great question, yeah. A lot of people have been asking that as well. I right. Think. So yeah. we, we actually don't know for sure that they are tidally locked. But There's no, like, it, observation. Right? Exactly. Right. Like, no so, one, no so one has as, proof of that. So as, And just for me as a layperson, when you say that, Oh, sure, that observation would be like our moon exactly. at, to the Earth. Like we can observe that the moon is actually tidally locked. Yeah. And the assumption is this is bad for life because you have one side of the planet, maybe like the, the American continent, for example, on the Earth, constantly mm -hmm. facing the sun all the time, like all the way around its orbit. Mm -hmm. And the other side might, you know, freeze out because it's going to be so cold. So this is the, the dilemma that, you know, if you have a tidally locked planet, maybe it's not so good for life. In this case, so the reason why we think they probably are tidally locked is that if you... Uh, simulate the, the the planetary system on a computer. You let them all the planets be freely rotating. You give them random mm -hmm. rotation periods. This is what they actually did in the paper. They simulated their orbits and they found that within 400 million years, which sounds like a lot, but on a cosmic right. time scale is yeah. not that much. Not a long they time. are all locked. It doesn't take that long for them to lock. So within you know a, a cosmic blink of an eye, right. no matter how fast they initially start spinning, they're going to end up tightly locked pretty quickly. So right. that's why we think they probably are, but we don't have direct proof that they are. And why do they end up tidally locked? Yes. So this is interaction between um, the the star and the planet, uh, basically. So what's happening is as the uh, star, uh, as the planet is rotating round, 
Um, it's, it has a slight tidal bulge from the, from the gravity of the star. So the gravity of the star is kind of making, it's like a squash ball. It's squashing the planets down into these little ellipsoids. Oh. And as it rotates round... Mm. Yeah, same thing. As it rotates round, uh, one side of this ellipsoid is a little bit closer and one side is a little bit further away from the star. And the star is kind of pulling on the near side a bit harder. So it's actually removing angular momentum off the, off the planet. It's literally... Uh, not literally, but it would be, it's, a, it's, it's like a braking system for a yeah. planet. Ah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly a braking system. It's a braking yeah. system for a planet. Yeah. Tidal, braking. Yeah. Tidal braking. Tidal braking. Tidal braking. Oh, okay. Tidal braking. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's super cool. And so uh, the implications for life would be, like you said, because you, yeah, so, and this is, I'm just going to add to your uh, question, um, Frank, because I've wondered this. When you have a tidally locked planet like this, and let's say that it's in the Goldilocks zone, uh, is it possible, and this is just from my imagination, that there might be a strip, uh, a stripe throughout the sphere of the planet? where that is the only place where you have habitable life. Yeah. That's actually, they call that the Terminator, which is what? a pretty cool name, right? Get out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the same thing we call it on the moon. I think this is yeah. actually a Jeopardy question the other way. This is how you can tell I'm a new, fam- new parent, is that my husband and I watch Jeopardy now <laughs> religiously. Yeah. Just before bedtime. It's fantastic. Oh, that's so funny. Uh, not Wheel of Fortune. So the, term- uh, the Terminator is not the bringer of death, it's the bringer of life in this case, potentially. Yeah. So, yeah it, it's a Terminator on the moon, but the Terminator on the moon shifts... Right, because the the we have the moon is tidally locked. That was a great example you the, used, Chuck. Right, the moon is, the moon tidally, is tidally locked, locked to Earth. us, but right. the s- sunlight is coming from the sun. The starlight is coming from the sun instead of from the Earth. Right, and so we can kind of think about the moon when we think about these planets, but not really because there's the the moon. The Terminator moves around the moon, mm-hmm. so that would be moving. But with these planets, the Terminator <clears throat> stays put. Will be stationary. Yeah, so there is no dark side of the moon. I always like to tell my students that. Plinkfoid lied to you. There's no yes. dark side of the moon. But for these Trappist planets, there is a dark side of these planets. That's actually so what, why moons were, could be better places. We'll come to moons later. Okay, but we'll that's get why to the moons. moons could be better that's places. I'm wearing my moon shirt yeah. today to remind me. Yeah. But the Terminator would be like perpetual sunset. Yeah. Sunrise or sunset, beautiful. it doesn't matter yeah. because it's not changing. Right. Oh, man, that's so cool. <laughs> Hello, this is Star Talk All-Stars Edition. I'm your all-star host this evening. Carolyn Porco is my name, and I'm a planetary scientist and the leader of the imaging science team on the Cassini mission, which is, as we speak, in orbit around Saturn. My co-host today is Chuck Nice. Thank you, Chuck, for being here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Carolyn, definitely. Well, I'm so glad to have you. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about some of the fascinating discoveries we've made on Enceladus with Cassini. Uh, And to help us out in this discussion, we have Chris McKay from uh, the Ames Research Center in the Bay Area. He's astrobiologist extraordinaire. Chris spends his time scouring the deserts of Earth from Antarctica to Siberia, Namibia, Sahara, trying to understand those places on the Earth that might be like Mars in their environment and wondering how life uh, can thrive there. 
Uh, he's been involved in conjuring what kind of human mission back to Mars uh, might be like. This is a mission that would be piloted by by humans. He's involved in that. And I've invited him here today because he is my cohort for the last 11 years in trying to get people to pay attention to what we have found with the Cassini mission at, on Enceladus, which is a small moon in the Saturn system, no bigger across than England, and why this small moon presents to us the most promising environment in the solar system to actually search for life or evidence of prebiotic chemistry. So welcome, Chris. Thank you, Carolyn. It's a pleasure to be here talking with you. Yes. Um, so we've gathered your cosmic queries about Enceladus and astrobiology from various social media. That's right, Chuck. Haven't yes, we done that? that's exactly what we have done. And we have uh, people from all over the Internet who have submitted their questions uh, via Facebook and Twitter and uh, you name it, whether it's StarTalk.net, it doesn't make a difference. We take them. And uh, they all want to know about Enceladus and more. You know, astrobiology and more. You know, people see your name and, you know, some people just want to know about Cassini and some people want to know about Saturn. And so I know that we're kind of focused on Enceladus. But, uh, you know, when you when you say when when people who who follow us, when we say Carolyn Porco, they immediately think Saturn because Neil calls you Madam Saturn. I'm Madam Saturn. For the rest of my life, I'll be Madam Saturn. <laughs> it's all right. It could be. It could be worse. It could be a lot worse. It could be worse. <laughs> so uh, let's take our first. You know, we always like to have a Patreon for those of you who are interested in supporting us on Patreon. By doing so, uh, you get to do, uh, do cool things like uh, you get invited to parties that we might throw, or you can submit a question uh, for our cosmic queries, and we will make sure that we read it because you gave us money. <laughs> That's a basic yeah. transaction Isn't in it? life. Right? That's a basic right? life transaction. You gave us money, and now we're going to do something for you. <laughs> so um, this is from uh, Luna McIntyre, who says, Do you think there are parallels that can be inferred by whatever is found with the Europa mission? Since the liquid oceans on both moons, I suppose both moons, she means Enceladus yes. and Europa, seems to be due to tidal heating. So are there any, uh, first of all, is that the case? I mean, yes. are both moons, uh, 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 are there oceans created by tidal heating? And uh, are there any parallels that we can uh, draw or infer from um, the similarities between Europa and Enceladus? There are a tremendous amount of parallels that we oh. can draw. They are, in fact, both heated by this mechanism of tidal flexure, uh, which is why they... Um, have oceans within them, and both of them have oceans. Uh, and I would say it goes the other way, that we have been nearly a dozen years now exploring up close and personal Enceladus with the Cassini mission, mm -hmm. and um, with a, an amazing suite of 12 investigations on the orbiter that have been brought to bear uh, over the course of those dozen years. And we know a tremendous amount about Enceladus, really far more knowledge about Enceladus at this point in time than we do about uh, Europa. But I'll turn this over to Chris because Chris also has a lot to say about this topic. So what do you have to say? Well, imagine sometime in the future when we find life on Enceladus, we find life on Europa. Are they the same life? Do they represent a common origin? Or, do they, or did life start independently on both of these water worlds? Or did life start on one and not the other? 
So I'm always focused on the biology questions, and a comparison between worlds is the most interesting possibility in terms of what kind of questions we can ask about biology and compare these two water worlds. And then, of course, we'd want to compare them to Earth as well. Yeah, and and let me let me just remind people that why why we've gone so goo goo gaga over Enceladus, and yes. that is because we found um, that it has a hundred and one tall geysers that are erupting from its south polar terrain, which is an area, if you were to scale Enceladus up to the size of the Earth, it would be like the latitude of Tierra del Fuego and everything south. Wow. Or if you were biased towards the northern hemisphere, it would be like uh, Edinburgh, Scotland, and everything north. Wow. So imagine having 101 enormous geysers erupting from the terrain that's that large, and once we found with Cassini these geysers, and we knew that the, the particles that we see in our images were accompanied by vapor, right. and they formed this enormous plume that went ultimately tens of thousands of kilometers uh, into orbit around Saturn, we took Cassini and we went barreling through it. Right. We went barreling through it time and time and time again. And we've been able to collect material and measure the contents of the vapor, measure the contents of the particles, measure the characteristics of the particles, how big they are, how their size is distributed above the surface. And all this information has finally told us where we are right now. We know we have a global ocean under about 35 kilometers worth of ice. Okay. It's salty. It's it's salty like the Earth's ocean wow. is salty. And it has... Uh, uh, organic materials. So it's got all the formal requirements of what in the NASA world, the NASA universe, we call a habitable zone. And that ocean is accessible now. What we have to do is fly through it again with the proper instruments, right? better than we have on Cassini, to measure uh, uh, measure it at a, a, with a greater precision and ask, start asking really interesting astrobiological questions. Chris, what are some of the things we could do if we had a mission that went back to Enceladus with proper instrumentation? What, what kinds of questions do we really want to know? Well, I think you, you said it well, Carolyn. We already know it's habitable. We already know it has organic material. We already know it has liquid water. We know that that liquid water is habitable. So the, the follow-on questions really go right to the biology. Is it inhabited? Does it have life? And then the challenge is, how do we search for life? Well, we can search for life using molecules and tools that we develop for characterizing Earth life, but it'd be nice to also have a capability to detect life if it's not Earth life. So then the question becomes, how do we detect life that's similar to Earth, lives in water, made of carbon, but is not directly related to us, doesn't have our DNA? Uh, and I, I think the answer to that is to search for amino acids and search for their handedness and see if there is an enrichment of heavy, complex amino acids in the plume of Enceladus, and then to see if those amino acids all have the same handedness, which is a clear signature of biological selectivity. When you, um, you know, from an astrobiological standpoint, what would be, what would be uh, more desirable um, to analyze these components flying through these plumes or capturing the water and bringing it back? Good question. That's a very, very good question. Um, there is, uh, There are people out there, groups of people, uh, one group I know of that are looking at the possibility of a sample return. 
It's not a trivial thing to do because there's a lot of concern if you bring a sample back to Earth. You don't want to have an Andromeda strain scenario where wow. you contaminate yes. the Earth. So, you know, that has to be done carefully. But Those Earthlings were really something special until they bought back that old <laughs> Enceladus water. Hmm? Really? That was the beginning of the end. You know, the instruments that we have on Earth are far more sophisticated than the ones that we could carry on a spacecraft. So, right. uh, so Chris, in fact, has been a big um, proponent of a sample return mission. But, but as Carolyn points out, one has to be extremely careful in bringing back a sample from an environment that we think could have life in it. And that environment is very similar to Earth's ocean. Uh, We've never done that before. We've brought back samples before, but we've never brought back a sample from a habitable environment. So this is a new challenge, and we have to proceed extremely carefully with it. So I think the next missions to Enceladus will not be sample return. They will investigate the plume in situ following up on Cassini, but they will be designed to search for life, unlike Cassini. Cassini did a fabulous job. It was a wonderful uh, uh, an unexpected find, and its ability to investigate it surprised all of us. And now we're back with a mission that's based on what we know and search for life in the plume. And then, meanwhile, think about how we bring a sample back safely, because ultimately we have to do that. Yeah, I wanted, can I just make a plug for Cassini? Because as Chris said, the instruments on Cassini that were really, I mean, the cameras, you know, can take a picture of anything, but the instruments that told us about the chemistry mm -hmm. were not designed to investigate a plume of material that was as tenuous as that which is coming off the south pole of Enceladus. They were designed to um, measure the atmosphere of Titan, for example, okay. uh, which is much more hefty. So um, it just, it was a beautiful demonstration of how important it is to first of all be in orbit and kind of take up residence in a planetary system so you have the leisure of discovering something and then going back to investigate it again and again and making changes in your approach. Right. Um, and that's what we did with Cassini. But I want to add just one more thing about Enceladus, which fascinates me. 92, 94% of the stuff that's being erupted from the South Pole of Enceladus, the particles, not the vapor, but the particles, comes back down to the surface. Right. It snows back down to the surface. So if there are microbes in the ocean of Enceladus that are being, sh you know, shot oh. out, they are, it's snowing microbes at the South Pole of Enceladus. So right. I think another thing we want to do is we want to go sample those particles and see if there are microbes in it. That's what I get really excited about. That's so, pretty cool. That I, it doesn't get any cooler than that. Yeah, that is, yeah <laughs> okay. that's, that's like, that's, uh, that's a holy grail. That's pretty fun. Now, yeah. and what do you do when you do that? Is, that? is that putting instrumentation down on the surface? Well, this is very interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've all been discussing this. We're discussing how you might uh, actually do this. And it just occurred to me recently, you don't need to land on the surface. Okay. All you need to do is really get into orbit around Enceladus. And the speed with which you pick up these particles would be gentle enough that you would not destroy part of, uh, microbes that were in the ice particles. And that's what we want. We'd love to be able to take a look at them. Now, whether or not we have the instrumentation now to do it is a question. Maybe, Chris, do you know something about this? The... Uh, the capabilities of microscopic imagers to do this sort of thing? Actually, as you point out, we don't have a heritage in planetary missions of searching for life. We haven't done that since Viking, 1976. 
But meanwhile, NASA and other organizations have been developing technologies for studying life on Earth. Uh, there's been satellites in Earth orbit that have looked at biology, and these life sciences technologies can be applied to the search for life and be made suitable for planetary missions. Life Things sciences like technology? Yeah, what That's is correct. what do you what do you mean by life sciences tech? That, that sounds oddly like uh, like a life coach. <laughs> no, 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 not, not that. What I mean is not lifestyle, not a lifestyle, not, not a lifestyle. Coach. Like what are what is the life sciences? Go ahead. Well, we can we can think of two different jobs that we might do in space. One is take life from Earth, right. and study it in space. That's called life sciences. The okay. Other is search for life on other worlds, life detection. They're both centered on life, but in one case, you're taking life with you and studying it. In the other case, you're going somewhere and seeing if there's life there. But for example, a, a fluorescent microscope would be handy in both cases. Well, there's not been the development of such a microscope for planetary, but there has been for life sciences. People have taken these kind of instrumentation into orbit to study organisms that they've carried with them to investigate the response of these organisms to the space environment. Uh -huh. We can take that technology and repurpose it to searching for life in the plume of themselves. Oh, God, oh, that's, that's so, great. it's so exciting. I can barely stand it. <laughs> that, that, that is. That's really, it's, it's like there, it's waiting for us to go back. Super cool. Super cool. So we're going to have to wind down now. Chris and Chuck, thank you for helping us out today. Oh, it's a pleasure. You've been listening to Star Talk Radio All-Stars Edition. I've been your all-star host, Carolyn Porco. Until next time. <laughs>